Mars holds the secret to one of the biggest questions in the cosmos. Is there life on the red planet or not? It looks dry and barren, but now intriguing signs that deep beneath this rocky surface, life may be thriving. You're listening to Canary Cry Radio. Now here are your hosts, Basil and Gons. Hey everyone, welcome again to Canary Cry Radio. My name is Basil. And I'm Gons. Again, welcome to Canary Cry Radio where we think outside the cage. And today we're going to think not just outside the cage, but we're going to think outside the house that the cage is in as well as perhaps the planet that the house is on. All right, that's a really bad analogy, but... Wow, yeah, there we go. We're off to a good start Good here. start, yeah. But so, anyways, those of you who pay attention to space things, um, you were just so excited, I'm sure, uh, that uh, America's back on Mars. Yeah. We made, we made it again. Yeah, and... Uh, like, it feels like the very first time again. Yeah, and they're making a big deal about it, and obviously it's um, a very interesting thing. But uh, we're going to dive into not just the uh, Curiosity rover that's there right now taking some awesome pictures of Mars, but we're going to use that as a launching point to really get into some very interesting and somewat speculative areas and uh, about Mars. Now, the thing about Mars is <sighs> the second you say the word Mars, a lot of times it's just it sounds so silly. I mean, just in the culture today, there's so much things, so many things about Mars that bring up movies like when Mars attacks and Marvin, the Martian and total recall. I mean, come on, that's the best movie. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And you know, so it's so hard to talk about in a serious manner, especially when things start to sound a little strange. Um, but we're going to try to get into it best we can. So just keep an open mind to uh, just at least hearing it. Nothing we're going to talk about today is um, we're you know going to fight tooth and nail um, as truth. But some very interesting things that are going around. Some very popular, not very popular, some popular ideas though around the conspiratory um, community as well as a lot of you know, fringe theological community too. We'll talk about that later. But anyways, let's talk about colonies on Mars right now. Yeah, well, let's, before we go right into colonies on Mars, um, you know, just a couple points about Mars. First, uh, you know, the name Mars comes from the Roman god of war. So there's, there's this ancient tie with Mars. Like, for some reason, ever since history began man's history began they've always written about mars it's the red planet they just always had this connection they always had some kind of mystical or you know some kind of uh tie with the planet mars and um you know it's it's one of those things that it's just interesting because it's in our history it's in our past and our curiosity about the planet is something that i think everybody has and that's why I think it's so silly now that, you know, people have capitalized on it to the extreme, you know, with different, like, like you said, Basil, about different, you know, silly movies and whatnot. But 
in the last 50 years, we've sent different things to Mars and many of them have failed. Like a lot of probes and, and rovers and satellites and stuff that were sent to Mars failed. Um, but some of them did work. And I'm going to list real quickly, I'm going to go through the list of ones that were successful and what they were able to bring back to Earth, or at least, uh, uh, you know, beam back to Earth. So, um, and I'm going to mention a couple of them from um, the USSR, because, you know, the, the Russian-US uh, race, you know, to get to Mars and whatnot. But uh, in 1964, Mariner 4 returned 21 images of Mars. So that was like the first images up close of Mars that we got. Uh, in 1969, Mariner 6 and 7 brought back a total of 201 images from Mars. In 1971, the USSR Mars 3 orbiter slash lander landed on the surface of Mars, but it only lasted 20 seconds before it died. So That's one thing that I, I think is funny is that we land, I mean, Russia landed on Mars far before America landed on Mars. Um, I mean, obviously their mission wasn't very successful, right. but it happened. Yeah. But then, you know, 20 seconds and, you know, right. Uh, that same year, um, the United States landed or had Mariner 9 bring back 7,329 images. So, you know, America was just pacing themselves, you know, just trying to <laughs> take some pictures from the sky and, you know, see what's going on. Um, in 1975, the Viking 2 brought back 16,000 images. And this this was, um, this is when we got the first image uh, of a real close, uh, detailed image of Mars. And it looked like just a chaotic you know, something crazy had happened in the ancient past where like, you know, they saw uh, what looked like dried riverbeds or like these huge craters and just, you know, something crazy happened in the, in the distant past of Mars that gave it all these, um, you know, warts basically. Uh, in 1988, uh, USA Phobos, which was supposed to land on Mars, failed to reach Mars. So, okay, there's one that failed. Yeah. <laughs> We're, we're getting good on sound effects on this show. <laughs> I know. I know. Uh, 1996, um, the Mars Pathfinder landed and lasted five minutes longer on the surface of Mars than expected. Or sorry, That's not five, five times. Five times longer, sorry. Yeah, five times longer. So uh, they beat some expectations there. In 2001, the Mars Odyssey brought back um, super high-resolution images. In 2003, the Mars Exploration Rover, which was called Spirit, lasted 15 times longer than expected. And then in 2005, the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter brought back 26 terabytes of information from Mars. Uh, and in 2007, Phoenix Mars Lander brought back 25 gigs of data. And just recently, and this is the reason why we were prompted to do this episode, uh, 2012, a $2.5 billion mission the Curiosity uh, landed on Mars in the uh, seven minutes of terror that I'm sure you guys have heard about, where, you know, it's this very dramatic entrance into the surface of Mars where they had this uh, thruster thing that, I mean, it was just crazy. I'm sure we'll link to it so you guys can check that out. Right. Yeah, so we've been up there quite a bit, I guess, in the past 40 years. Yeah, and, you know, the pictures of the face on Mars and the pyramids and stuff, and we'll get into some of that in a little bit, but... Right. Right. Well, this, just to mention real quick is I find it interesting that, uh, you know, 1969, 1971, that was sort of the same 
time frame that uh, a lot of other sort of uh, things were happening with Mars, a little bit more secretive. Um, right. Some teleportation to Mars, allegedly. Yeah, and we'll definitely get into that. <laughs> right. So, you know, the whole idea of this, the big deal they're making about the curiosity, uh, potentially, again, a lot of speculation on this show. Don't don't take all this as, you know, fact or truth, but is it possible that they are preparing the world for some major discoveries on Mars? And the thing is, there are some people that are out today who are very public that not only is there life on Mars, but that we have been to Mars. Yeah, human beings teleporting to Mars. And like you said, you, you said, uh, you know, this may be uh, them preparing us for some sort of disclosure. And we're going to work towards a very interesting situation that could happen in the next few years, just following some logistical steps here that may lead to a uh, full disclosure of um, not only Mars teleportation, but all the black ops uh that uh, the government has been doing in regards to time travel and things like that, which are all um, just sort of a big bucket of alleged right now with whistleblowers and some some interesting documents come coming out. But yeah, so we're, we want to actually focus on one gentleman. His name is Andrew Bashago, and uh, we reached out to him to see if he wanted to come on the show and talk about stuff, but. You know, he's a coast to coast guy, so he's probably swamped with emails and our email was swallowed up in the, uh, you know, I don't know, wave right. of stuff that he receives from people. But he didn't get my carrier pigeon either. No, that so. that failed. It probably it was probably shot down. Yeah. Unfortunately, went the way of uh, the USSR Mars rover. Yeah. Lasted okay. for five seconds. Yeah. All right. <laughs> so yeah, Mr. Uh, Bajago, some of you may have uh, an idea about this guy. He's been, you know, making the rounds, doing his whistleblowing for quite a few years now. And I mean, if you've looked into anything about Project Pegasus or the Montauk chair or maybe not the Montauk chair, but all, all these sort of things, the Philadelphia experiment, he, he's sort of in that area. And let's see, he started, what did he start? Well, uh, he started what's called MARS, the M-A-R-S, Mars Anomaly Research Society. And, you know, his, his testimony is where a lot of the compelling things come from. Um, and like you mentioned, you know, he, obviously he was, uh, he claims to be part of what was called Project Pegasus. Right. And, um, well, you know, before we get into all that stuff, there's a little, uh, a little bio of Mr. Bashago on his website, projectpegasus.com. So I'm going to read this, this real quick here. Um, Mr. Bashago is the founder and president of Mars, M-A-R-S, that's that uh, organization he started called Mars Anomaly Research Society, and team leader of Project Pegasus. Uh, is a lawyer, writer, scholar, and 21st century visionary. He's been an emerging figure in the truth movement, leading a campaign to lobby the U.S. government to disclose such controversial truths as the fact that Mars harbors life and that the U.S. has achieved quantum access to past and future events. So that's a brief, just little snippet of his bio from um, 
from his his uh, website and right it's pretty intense yeah it's super intense <laughs> and um you know he's been on coast to coast he was on coast to coast on november 11th of 09 and again on november 11th in 2010 11 11 twice in a row um i don't know if he was on there again recently yeah it's interesting but, uh, yeah and and so this guy's testimony it it all starts back in 1970 when this kid when this guy was a teenager and where allegedly DARPA, the Defense Advanced Research Project Agency, which at the time was ARPA, didn't have the defense at the beginning, um, I guess they had a space-time program, and they were sort of developing it, and you know, it was sort of this compartmentalized part of the government that nobody really knew about, and they're trying to keep it secret, obviously. Um, because a lot of interesting technologies had come out of that program, at least uh, in the words of a few whistleblowers. Um, they were experimenting with teleportation and uh, also time travel, which are subjects that I'm very interested in and also uh, are very closely related in the context of Nikola Tesla's technology, which is the technology that they were using for this project. And it's um, more or less opening up portals to different places, but also um, different places in time. And, and he talks about, I mean, first of all, let's talk about how he got into the project. He, he was a kid and his, his father worked for the government and was part of the project. And his father was on a time jump and I mean, this this sort of stuff goes down a lot of rabbit holes, but we'll, we'll just try to keep it simple. His dad was on a time jump at the uh, the Gettysburg Address. And while his dad was at the Gettysburg Address, he saw his son there. And he, he, he sort of, he didn't run up or say hi or anything. He just sort of stood back. But then he comes back to present time and tells everybody, like, look, I just saw my son at the Gettysburg Address. And so through that, they, f they knew that, you know, they were supposed to bring him onto the project. Um, so that's sort of how he got brought into this whole world at such a young age. I mean, he was a young kid at this point. Um, well, fast forward. Now, DARPA is experimenting with teleportation and... What they're doing is they're teleporting Andrew Bushago from his hometown in New Jersey. He goes to like a teleportation place that they put there. They teleport him to New Mexico and they do experiments and he goes through time and does sort of time jumps and does all this stuff and they study the effects of traveling time on kids and all sorts of stuff. And then they... They teleport him back to New Jersey at the end of the day, but they teleport him also back in time to like be like right after he left. So they're able to keep it a big secret because nobody knew he was gone in the first place. Right. So he gained, you know, several hours a day over that summer. And, you know, yeah, like you said, he, this is how he claims that they were able to keep it a secret because his, you know, even his mother, I think he said, didn't even know that he was traveling through time and, you know, going to New Mexico. And an interesting thing that he said uh, in one of the interviews that um, we were, you know, checking out of him, we together, Basil and I, we listened to a bunch of his interviews and stuff to gather some of this information. But he said that everybody 
that got through the portal. Uh, you know, it was all good, but at one point, um, I can't remember the specific story, but essentially what happened was, uh, something happened where the kid didn't get through properly or something through the portal and he lost his feet. So, you know, there were some, some casualties in this project according to, uh, Mr. Bashago. So some interesting stuff. I mean, you know, again, who knows if that's true or not, but it's one of those things that gives a little bit of. I guess, realistic, uh, account to the right. possibility. And, and the thing that's really fascinating about this is that, I mean, he, since he's come out and done this, I mean, there's been a few other guys who have come out and, you know, they all sort of are able to corroborate on the same, um, stories with some of the same detail, who knows if it's, if they've all gotten together and sort of decided that this is the act that they're going to do. Right. Or not, but I mean, uh, you, you just never know. But uh, let's just assume that these guys are having some sort of genuine uh, experience here, whether it's you know actually happening or some sort of other mind control type screwy thing. Right. Well, there's two technologies that he discusses, and one of them is like you mentioned, the Tesla. Um, basically the Tesla papers that he left when he died in 1943, I think. Yeah. Which is a kind of an interesting thing on its own. If we'll just take a second when Tesla died, um, the FBI and also the department of defense both had people rushing to his apartment to basically, they're basically scrambling to get as much of his, um, schematics and technology and notebooks as possible before you know uh, the, the other the other government agencies do and it's funny because it kind of shows this rivalry between certain government agencies but yeah. the Department of Defense got there first and so they were <laughs> they they got the goods and FBI was uh, left without any teleportation technology that's too bad for them um, so basically yeah so they were kind of using the schematics and the papers that. Tesla left and he was, or or he, the uh, defense department was trying to reconstruct some of these technologies. So, um, and, and apparently according to Bashago, not even Tesla knew what these, some of the uh, effects were of, uh, of these devices. So anyway, they, they create (laughs) this thing, right? They create this portal thing and they, they, they see this illuminated force field and they didn't know what it was, but then one of the workers that was working on it, uh, you know, walked through it to get to like a wrench or something on the other side and he disappeared. And the guy in charge of this whole project freaked out. Well, turns out that the guy who walked through the portal ended up in Africa. And then several weeks later, he shows yeah. back up in America, <laughs> knocks on the door of this guy and the guy almost faints and has a heart attack because, you know, they thought he just disintegrated, but no, he just <laughs> popped out in Africa somewhere. Yeah, and had to. He gets teleported to Africa and just has to figure out how to get back. Yeah, figure out how to get back with nothing but the clothes on his back. It's kind of a funny story, but anyways, going on. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, the other the other technology that that uh, DARPA was developing derived from two Vatican musicologists named Gemelli and Ernetti, and. Um, these, this device, you might have heard of it. It's called the Chronovisor, and what had happened was they were they accidentally discovered this because you know they're musicologists. Um, while they were trying to study the harmonic patterns 
of the Gregorian chant, and this is back in the 1940s. And by the 1950s, according to you know all these people, uh, the technology was so good that it can actually look into past events via electrical electro optical devices or like holograms of kind of past events. So if they wanted to see the crucifixion of of Jesus, they can do that through this chronovisor. And I find it right. interesting that the Vatican has ties with this because this brings right. in a whole nother, you know, angle. But we won't right. get too far into that today. But yeah, just yeah, some well, interesting events. There's even talk about that the the Vatican still uses one of these. Um, I mean, and obviously the U.S. government, I'm sure, has some sort of advanced chronovisor. But anyways, yeah, so there's some pretty funky stuff. And I mean, like we said at the beginning, the, you, you really are just going to have to open your mind to listen to this stuff. Yeah. Um, and I mean, uh, I mean, a lot of you have, have read my... Uh, my first article on time travel and trying to tie it in with God and Christianity and things. And these are a couple of the technologies that I'm hoping to get into if I ever uh, (laughs) continue um, to finish those uh, papers. But, and it's just, um, so yeah, it's really interesting stuff. Let's, let's move on a little bit. Yeah. And hopefully we'll build one of those devices too in the near future. Yeah. That's what we're going to work on. So (laughs) (laughs) our, our, our big dreams are, uh, you know, (laughs) to build the chronovisor for ourselves and be part of the uh, changing of the fabric of space-time. Um, look, you can find that in our mission statement. <laughs> uh, can I cry radio? <laughs> Not quite, but oh. maybe. I don't know. No. Maybe maybe it'll be there by the time you guys are listening. No. Probably it- not, though. Um, but, yeah, so, you know, as we mentioned, Andrew was brought in to Project Pegasus via his father, who was um, an, an aerospace engineer. Uh, his name's Raymond Francis Bashago. And um, yeah, all the stuff we mentioned before of him jumping from New Jersey to New Mexico and and doing all sorts of crazy, uh, you know, time jumping and stuff like that. And, and for the next couple years, that, now remember, Andrew's, you know, 8, 9, 10 years old, 10, 11 years old. So he's pretty young, you know. And I, I try to think back to 10, 11 years old. I mean, I have memories, but it's pretty hard to uh, remember very specific things, but I'm sure if you were doing something as time travel, you'd uh, probably remember. It's pretty memorable, I think. Yeah, and he even mentioned how they tried to erase some of these memories via some pain infliction, but it didn't work. Yeah, and there's also talk of medication. Um, And we'll talk about some other whistleblowers later who who reported medication that they would give them after and before some of these things. Uh, And... And there are known substances that will inhibit uh, memory, um, you know, storage. But the the strange thing is, not the strange, but the thing is with uh, blocking memories and things like that, memories seem to be held at a lot of different places in the brain, not necessarily uh, in one center um, that can be affected. So I guess what's been happening is you know this is the story that even those who were given the drugs uh, are able to ten years later these memories just start resurfacing and so right. I guess that's why all these other whistleblowers are coming out sporadically with these memories um, right and you know the initial I guess story if you will for what the all this you know Project Pegasus was about was you know. The, the usual story, you know, to gather intelligence for 
the U.S. government into looking at past and future events for national security, you know? So, right. <laughs> right. Well, yeah, an interesting story with the chronovisor, um, around the same time in this, in 71, they were doing uh, experiments with the chronovisor and also the Institute for Remote Viewing. Right. And what happened was, at the same time, they had the Institute for Remote Viewing and and uh, the chronovisor both looking into the future to 2013. And interestingly enough, both of both the institute and whoever is doing the chronovisor um, were looking at the Capitol building in 2013, which was the you know the goal to see what was going on at that point. And both of them saw um, the Capitol building under 100 feet of stagnant water. Right. Right. Which is interesting, um, and and I mean they've come out uh, later saying that the chronovisor doesn't show the definite future; it just shows a possibility, which just sort sort of dilutes the whole thing. Um, I mean, if if you're looking into the future and it's just a possibility, it's not the. I mean, I can look into the future and think of possibilities right. uh, without right. a chronovisor. Right. But anyways, so. Yeah, so this this is where it starts to get very interesting as well because after he was about I think eleven or twelve years old, he was you know he completed the the Project Pegasus thing, and it was done you know and he he said he openly talked about it with his teachers and friends and stuff like that and I'm sure you know eleven twelve years old ah he's got a great imagination whatever. Well, when he was I think he was like eighteen or nineteen, he got brought back into the project and and I can't remember the exact name of it. Do you have that over there, Basil? Um, for the Mars exploration. Yeah, this is, yeah, again, this is where it starts tying in with Mars, but. Right. I don't have the exact name of the project. I, it could have just been Project Pegasus in, in, in its, you know, second phase or whatnot. Yeah, uh, so. But th this is the part that uh, Mr. Bashago claims he couldn't remember until recently where his, some of his, you know, memories started to resurface because the, some of the uh, mind controlling things to make him forget stuff worked. Um, right. But to get into some of these things, basically, um, <laughs> he makes some pretty wild claims about going to Mars. Right. Yeah. And so I guess there was um, they started up a project where they were teleporting to Mars. Um, and we could go into the Delta T antenna and everything and how they first opened up a portal. But I don't think that's the really interesting part. Um Anyways, somehow they teleported to Mars, but before they actually got there, they're, you know, you're in a training program, a Mars teleportation training program, you know, they're in some classroom and he, it's, there's some very interesting people in there with him. There's reportedly about 10 other teenagers um, or 10 teenagers total. And uh, allegedly one of them, was Mr. Barry Satoro, who is now more famously or infamously known as Barack Obama. Right. Now, this was pretty wild when I heard about this. Um, but we're just going to go with the story. We're just going to we're just going to report what's being reported, and you know, leave everybody up to uh, deciding for themselves. But. So this, uh, the teenagers who are in this classroom, they all come from, uh, you know, CIA families. They're sort of choosing these kids for their personality types and their leadership abilities and their 
um, you know, their collective knowledge and things like that. They want to be good team players and things. And they're also all related to CIA agents and people who are already sort of in the program. All right. So, uh, and let, let me jump in real quick just to, for the Obama thing. Sure. Um, just, you know, a few days after the Mars Curiosity rover landed, uh, President Barack Obama went to go congratulate them. Um, and after he commended their hard work and, you know, um, you know, just kind of gloated about the American space program and everything like that, he ended his call by saying, if in fact you do make contact with Martians, please let me know right away. <laughs> so... <laughs> Just a, just a little yeah. setup there, you know. Right, and well, nonchalant. and Obama, yeah, and Obama has shown some interesting ideas on aliens and things like that in the past. Right. So, and yeah, and so that happened right after Curiosity landed. Well, interestingly enough, um, Andrew Bishago tells a story about being in a classroom with uh, Barry Satoro. Um, oh, and just to rewind a little bit, I was uh, going to mention that. Uh, it's speculated or it's reported that um, Barry's mom was in the CIA and was sort of doing intelligence gathering in Indonesia. And, uh, you know, that's sort of why Barack Obama was over there and why his mom is so famously absent from his life and things like that. Um, so Andrew and Barry Satoro are in this classroom with a bunch of other kids and uh, Somebody leans over to Andrew and says, uh, isn't it, how interesting is it, or something along the lines of, uh, isn't it great or crazy to be in a classroom learning teleportation to Mars with the future president of the United States? And uh, so even back then, you know, the CIA knew that Barack Obama was going to be the president which is an interesting uh, development. I'm, I'm sure that was with the chronal visor and everything like that. Um, but then at, right after that, somebody leans in and uh, corrects him and says, two future presidents of the United States. And he was referring to Bijago himself. So, and we'll get into that a little bit later, but um, it is referred to that Bajago himself will be a president of the United States. That sounds like an awesome story. If I were going to make up a story about going to Mars, I would sort of probably slip in how I'm supposed to be president too. <laughs> but <laughs> again, we're just, we're just telling the story as he told it. Yeah. So, okay. Here's where it gets very interesting as well. So in 2008, uh, Bashago published a paper called The Discovery of Life on Mars. And we'll post a link to it. You guys can check it out yourself. It's a PDF document that uh, he wrote. Now, the backstory to this is that when, and again, this is according to Mr. Bashago himself. Right. Um, and we're not saying it's true or untrue. We don't know. But uh, according to him, when he was very young, about seven or eight years old, um, his father, who again, who was part of the U.S. government and he was part of these black projects and who was time jumping, handed Andrew uh, his paper from 2008 that he was going to write. And again, this is back in, I guess, the 60s or something when he was a little boy. So right. apparently, so this was sort of a government experiment um, to allow Andrew to see his future work 
And right. he rec- he says that he recalls reading it and holding it and seeing the published date of 2008. And, um, you know, he, he talks about how it was an interesting process to come up with this document and write it. He was very hesitant to release it. And, um, you know, just the various emotions that he went through as he was writing this document. And so, again, very creative. You know, if you're a storyteller, I mean, that's like an awesome little plot line there, but uh, who knows? But, um, you know, that's kind of the backstory, but let's, let's get into a little bit of this document because. Yeah. uh, And can I say, before we get into the document, I'm drawn to want to believe Andrew's testimony. Um, Things sound, and, and especially since there's a, a number of people who can corroborate a number of details, uh, uh, and more coming out, more people coming right, out, and more people coming out, and things like this. And you know, I just believe that there's a lot going on that we don't know about. And I know that the government has technologies that are decades ahead of what the public um, has access to, and and all this. So, just I started reading this wanting to believe what's going on. So, there's a little precursor. Okay, so. Um Again, you guys can read it yourselves. We'll post a link there. But uh, okay, so basically the document goes through an image that was taken on the rover Spirit in 2007. It's an image called PIA-10214. And Bashago claims that it reveals life on Mars. And if you right. read if you read his, uh, his document, I mean his abstract, the first sentence of his paper is, there is life on Mars. And right. he's very adamant about this. And this is the image that if you, I'm sure if you're listening to this show, you've probably heard of the statue on Mars, this humanoid right. looking figure uh, that appears on in this image in kind of the left hand corner. Uh, and I, when I first saw that, I remember thinking, oh my goodness, that's, you know, that's a statue of a person. And Right. It's a pretty famous image and we'll post it so everybody can look at it. And it's just a... It is. It's a statue of a woman on Mars. And it's crazy. It's mind-blowing that that exists up there. And that alone should be the subject of his paper. Right. But he starts getting into some different things. But So basically, what he does is... Um, it's, it's, I'll be honest, it's a little disappointing. <laughs> it is. It's quite disappointing. Um, but he, yeah. he, he starts going through... Okay. The image is this huge image, and you can go look at it right now. And it's a huge image with this rocky desert landscape. And in the corner, there's the statue of the woman. And you're like, "Wow, that's crazy." There's aliens on on Mars, but or, then, or at least the potential of an ancient civilization. Right, exactly. But then he starts zooming into like rocks and shadows and just complete nonsense and starts talking about how those are also sculptures and how this picture is just is a picture of a martian like art museum or art landscape or something and how there's sculptures of humans and sculptures of dead bodies and and animals and animal human hybrids and caterpillar mothers and scorpion kings <laughs> and, and you just start and he has the pictures and he shows the pictures and zooms in on the things he's talking about and they're just rocks I mean 
I try. I tried really hard to like see exactly what you see. Yeah, it, it, just can't do it. Yeah, and it's difficult because you know when you zoom into an image, obviously it's pixelated, and he's looking at literally he's looking at like five or six pixels and saying, "Look at that, you know, right. humanoid well, scorpion or whatever." Right, and it doesn't help. I went to the bottom of the paper there where. It, um, you know, with with uh, scholarly articles, um, they always post how they did it in the um, methodology section. If you, you know, wrote any big papers in college, you probably did a methodology section where you sort of talk about how you did certain things in the paper. And he talks about how he just used, used paint, like M- MS Paint program. <laughs> to sort of cut and enlarge these images. And I'm not, that's really not saying anything, but like she just should have taken some time, get somebody who knows Photoshop or, I mean, this is 2008. You can get some great free image programs to, you know, help out those pixels a little bit, but he's using MS paint that I used to play with MS paint as a toddler on our first, you know, computer. Right. And it's no place to be revealing life on Mars right. um, with MS Paint. Anyways. Yeah. So, yeah. And just a few. Let's see. What are just a few of the statues that he claims to see? Uh, let's well, see. There's um. Well, there's the face of a bull. And it's uh, I'm looking at this thing and it's. It's a rock. It's a rock. Yeah. It's probably, you know, it's an interesting shaped rock. I'll give you that. It's. It's, you know, it's, it's not it's, just it's a normal, rock, right. It's a rock you'd expect to see on Mars. It's a Mars rock. Yeah. Now, but there's, there's also a dolphin that a he sees right. that's sprouting out of the ground right. as if they'd be coming out of the sea. Um, there's a locust, a dead locust who is upside down, which is also, uh, uh, um, a pile of rocks. Uh, there's a sleeping cat statue. Yeah. A Martian sleeping cat statue that is Scorpion Man, right? Scorpion Man, the baby salamander, right? Nestled in the rocks. Um, so okay, I mean, I don't want to be too harsh, but it was disappointing at yeah. the least. It was disappointing at the least. This, I mean, this is what he was destined to write and was revealed as a child that he was going to write this earth shattering life on Mars paper. And I was just expecting more, but that all being said, all of that being said that you look at the picture and there's the statuette of the woman and it's undeniably strange. Yeah, definitely. And you know, there's a phenomenon and I'm going to butcher this, the pronunciation of this, it's called perial. What is it? Periodalia. Perry. Pareidolia. Pareidolia. Okay. Yeah. Whatever. Uh, anyway, it's it's basically when you know people ascribe patterns and shapes to things. The most uh, you know common examples is when people look at the clouds and oh, it's a dolphin or it's a you know or, or whatever or you know you see people see Jesus's face on a tortilla or something. It's like oh, it's Jesus's face and it's like eh, you know it's just a burn mark, you know. Right. But um, that that's what that is, and and it. it you know, other than some of the, other than the the statue of a woman, uh, the rest of it just seems like kind of a a case of that that's right. going on. Yeah, right. It is. But that being said, and as, and as harsh as we are on that paper, this guy does have a lot of interesting things to say. And um, 
which are all being corroborated by other people. And it's very interesting. And that's really the one work that we can pick on. He has a lot of other works that are very fascinating. Right. Um, and, and a lot of it's based in science and which is great, but so, yeah, so that's, that's sort of a good and bad about this guy. Now, right. now there's also some of the other people who have come out and start talking about it is a former U S serviceman, Michael Ralph, or Ralphie, who spent 20 years as a member of the permanent security staff of a U.S. facility on Mars. There's also former Department of Defense scientist Arthur Newman, who has testified publicly that he teleported to U.S. facility on Mars for uh, Department of Defense project meetings. And most interestingly, Laura Magdalene Eisenhower, the great-granddaughter of, yes, U.S. President Dwight D. Eisenhower. Uh, in 2007, she claims that she refused a covert attempt to recruit her into um, what was described to her as a, a secret U.S. colony on Mars. And so we start, and these people have been talking a lot about this. And the story goes that since the 70s, America has been colonizing Mars. Using, I mean, whatever techniques you do to, to to colonize Mars, but that's not even the most fascinating part about this. The most fascinating, I mean, it continues. They talk about how there's predators on Mars. There's there's animals, um, of which a lot are very dangerous, allegedly, and. There's a story about, you know, they were given weapons and told like, yeah, there's dangerous things. Some of them you can outrun, but no, you can't run out, outrun others. So make sure to take this gun um, and things like that. And on top of that, of those sort of life forms, there's also, you know, they are giving testimony about Martians. Now, um, a little bit more about the colonies before we talk about the Martians uh, at the time they were told that there or Andrew Bajago was told at, at one time that there were 97,000 people who had been sent to Mars by the United States. And that's by, I believe this was the eighties, the seventies or eighties. It was eighties. Yeah. By the eighties, 97,000 people, Americans had been sent to Mars to colonize it, but only 7,000 had survived after uh, like a period of five years because of the predators and the, you know, and they're sort of recolonizing it. So they don't really have the best technology. I mean, the kind the the way I, I it was described, kind of described was kind of gave me the image of like pioneering the old West. Like they said, they had these really, uh, low tech sort of housing. Um, and I don't know, they had to like kill animals and like eat that. I don't know. And there wasn't that much water. And so it's definitely a hostile environment. Well, we can teleport to Mars, but you know, obviously, a, a you know, a house with running water is just right. Right. Well, I mean, yeah, they would say that, uh, yeah, they just didn't bring enough stuff to keep everybody alive. I mean, 97,000 people, granted, is a large amount of people. I mean, I grew up in a town that had 14,000 people. And so to know that there was, you know, a colony on Mars that was, you know, eight times the size of my hometown. <laughs> but and, and now they're saying that uh, by now, the colony on Mars would have 500,000 Americans, you know, half a million people 
up there on Mars, Americans. And uh, yeah, we we discussed uh, or we had mentioned Martians, and it's very interesting. He mentions three types of Martians that are reportedly living on Mars, along with American colonists. And one is uh, one is an alien gray, uh, you know the the usual that we think of the the gray guys, skinny guys, big eyed guys, you know. Um, another one is sort of like almost like a de-evolved human. It sort of sounds like they're sort of the skittish sort of um, like a crow magnum man. Well, not quite, but yeah, kind of like a skittish elf looking thing with pointy ears and it's just sort of strange. Like still a humanoid, but I don't even. I'm trying to think of something that in pop culture that people could relate it to, but I'm not sure. Anyways, and then but the third Martian they're talking about is just basically a DNA uh, relation to human beings. They look very much like human beings, and they talk about how there's you know a good amount of those types of Martians on Earth right now living. Um, among us, which is something that uh, we've all heard once in a while in the movies and around other conspiratorial groups. So, yeah, those are the Martians. And speaking of life on Mars, Gons. <laughs> well, yeah, let's we'll jump into that in a second. But I was um, there's a couple of different things that I wanted to mention. Is that one? Uh, you know, this, again, this is very speculative, but there are, there's somebody that Bishago claims, uh, is going to come out and be another whistleblower and, but he doesn't agree that they actually went to Mars, current day Mars. He believes that they went to an ancient, an ancient Mars and not a current Mars because, you know, you look at Mars right now and it's obviously a desert and there's no, right. nothing there and, and whatnot. So, uh, you know, the possibility of uh, time traveling, but at the same time, not necessarily time travel in the sense that we might understand it with all sorts of paradoxes and stuff like that. But the concept of these Martians being able to create a moment in time that is separate from our history. Right. And I'm not explaining this very well, but it's almost like a bubble that is kept preserved in sort of a virtual quasi virtual world right. um, where it's actually the real place, but it's not actually in time because, and the time doesn't lead to what we could call the present future. Right. Right. It's like a pocket in time that was set aside and preserved to be able to travel to. And right. so, I mean, it brings up all sorts of interesting concepts and potentialities of right. time travel without having there being oh. the paradoxes that people normally talk about with time travel. Right. Well, that fits with, um, well, sort of fits with one theory of time travel, which is the wormhole. The wormhole is, uh, the way the wormhole works is you have to create it on one side and then everything that happens later, you can go back, but you can only go back to that one point. Right. So it sort of uses the same um, sort of, you know, theory or idea or whatever. It's so it's kind of weird talking about time travel technology. You don't really know what to call it if we don't know it's real. And <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. But anyways, a lot yeah. of speculation. So, okay. 
So we've kind of gone through all this um, Bashago stuff and, and the potential life on Mars and all this stuff. Oh, and, and again, the other, um, alongside that, the, the other theory that's, that's been kind of out there is that, yes, um, it's current day Mars that Bashago and his, um, you know, the 90,000 have traveled to, but it's not on the same three-dimensional plane that we're on. It's on a higher dimension, you know, maybe a fourth dimension or something. And that's why physically on the third dimensional level we can't see anything on the surface of mars but if we had the eyes to see the fourth dimension then there's this entire civilization there so that's you know again that's pretty new agey but that's those are the uh the 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 theories and you know things that that's, are out there regarding this whole issue that's the scuttlebutt yeah <laughs> <laughs> the um time travel scuttlebutt so okay so this is where we want to kind of um jump into the Bible because, um, you know, a lot of people think Mars, space travel, all this stuff. And then they think Bible and they're like, ah, you know, I don't know where, where the two relate. Right. And it's actually a huge division. I would think, I think that it's sort of ignored completely, um, by the church and, and by most Christians, which I mean, it's it's understandable because it's very confusing. Yeah, it's definitely a, a big topic and and something that it's it's very speculative from the biblical side as well. That's why it's probably hardly discussed. But um, you know, we're going to talk about some stuff that that you may have heard of. I, I'm sure if you've been you know uh, in the realms of uh, Christian literature and theories and theology and stuff like that, you've probably come across some of this. Um, if not, then, you know, it's a potential possibility of what the Bible is describing uh, that relates to this concept of an ancient civilization on Mars or even a current one. Um, but so it really just starts at the very beginning. Um, and it starts at Genesis 1-2. And I'm just going to read Genesis 1-2. And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God moved up upon the face of the waters. And the word for was, and the earth was without form, in the Hebrew is hayata, and I'm, I'm probably butchering the, uh, the pronunciation, and uh, Doug Hamp would be very upset, but it's yeah. hayata. And um, the same word that's Hayata in Genesis 3.20 is used, and Adam called his wife, uh, wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And now that was, in that passage in Genesis 3.20, is more accurately translated as become. So there are some translations of the Bible that say Adam, uh, Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all living. Because obviously, I mean, she, she, to say she was is a past tense when, you know, People are still the children of Eve, technically. Right, so, right. okay, so become. Now, if we bring that back to um, Genesis 1-2, then it would read differently. It would say, and the earth became without form and void. And again, some of you guys are you know sitting there going, oh, it's the gap theory. And yes, this is part of the gap theory, but it goes, you know, I'm going to go much deeper or, you know, we're going to try to dig much deeper into this and, and hopefully uh, your brain will stay in your head by the end of this, but um, Strong's concordance uh, defines the word hayata uh, as to fall out, come to pass, become be. Uh, the Englishman's concordance reflects the, the same stuff as does the Brown Driver Briggs and the uh, NAS exhaustive concordance. All these concordances uh, all 
line up. They all think this word Hayata means to fall out, come to pass, become. So, you know, to say that the earth was without form and void and to just, you know, just say, oh, you know, in the beginning when God created the earth, it was just without form. It was just completely void. Well, maybe, maybe not. I don't know. But let's, let's keep going here. So, um, so yeah, so back to Genesis 1-2, if, um, if the word for was is supposed to be became, then what did the earth become? And so, you know, the earth became without form and void. And that word without form or formless is the word tohu. And according to Strong's Concordance, uh, the word means formlessness, confusion, unreality, emptiness. Now, you know, God wouldn't necessarily make the world a confusing place. And actually, there's evidence for that. Uh, in Isaiah 45, 18, it says, For thus saith the Lord that created the heavens, God himself that formed the earth and made it, he had he hath established it. He created it not in vain. That word vain there is tohu. Uh, he formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord, and there is no none else. Now it's interesting. So what? Yeah, what exactly does this mean? So it's interesting that in Isaiah forty five eighteen, it seems to be stating that God did not create the world in vain in tohu, but in Genesis one two it says, and the earth was without form. Tohu. Now, either there's a contradiction in the Bible or something else is going on. And that word was is supposed to be became. And something happened between Genesis 1-1 when God created the universe and when he created the earth, something happened to the earth and it became darkness, chaos, formless. And um, we're just going to keep going here to... See, uh, so you're saying in the Hebrew... We need to be translating it as became instead of potentially, was. potentially, potentially. Yeah, okay. we we don't know for sure. And, and again, these things are debated amongst the smartest people in the world. So I'm not going to say that I know for sure. And and right. this whole thing, I'm going to say I don't know for sure because, again, it's it's. Well, yeah. I mean, we're dealing with some pretty wild stuff. But yeah. let's continue. Okay, let's keep going. So, if God didn't create the world in tohu and chaos and whatnot, then why does it say that it was chaotic? So that's that's the point there. So if you're a young earth creationist, and I know there's probably some out there, you guys may be thinking, oh man, it's the gap theory and it's just totally unbiblical and there's all, the, all these other proof texts that go against it and whatnot. And and you're right, there are some texts that seem to indicate otherwise, um, but you know, it, it, it doesn't necessarily negate the fact that this fact is there uh, between Genesis 1-2 and Isaiah 45-18. But not only that, um, you know, some some young earth creationists will say that, oh, you know, if this other gap theory is true, then the science, uh, the scientists are correct. And, you know, the universe is billions of years old. And, um, you know, the earth is 15 billion years old. And if that's the case, then what about create, what about the creation of man and woman? What about the, the six day creation account? And, and yeah, those are all valid questions. Uh, I still think the six day creation was a six day creation. Some say that it was a recreation. So it's possible that, you know, once the world was messed up, God kind of reformed it to be inhabited by humanity. And, and again, it's interesting that Satan just kind of appears in the garden as like this, adversary but let's let's move on here so all this points to the possibility 
and again, very, I want to stress possibility. <laughs> um, You're scaring me, guys. I know, I know. I'm, the people are going to be like, you heretic. Um, a possibility of a pre-Adamic race that lived prior to the creation of humanity. And again, keep in mind the topic here. We're talking about Mars and we'll get there. So, you know, were they actual physical beings or were they just, you know, spiritual angelic beings? I have no idea. Uh, but the conflict, the concept definitely reflects um, this, this possibility. And many early uh, Hebrew rabbis actually say that, you know, there was an, a pre-Adamic race that existed. So, I mean, it's not like this crazy idea that I'm coming up with here. Um, well, some early Hebrew rabbis had some pretty crazy ideas, but well, yeah, they all had crazy. <laughs> oh, yeah. I know. I know. Like this one's not as crazy or anything. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, okay. So let's, let's look at the consideration of angels or just, you know, some sort of intelligent, uh, beings, not human, but entities of some kind, spiritual or otherwise existing prior to uh, us hum humans existing. Uh, mm -hmm. Job 38 immediately comes to mind. It says, uh, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you understand who marked the dimensions. Surely, you know, who stretched and measure, uh, who stretched a measuring line across it on what were its footings set or who laid its cornerstone. And this is where the real interesting part is. Uh, while the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy. Now, the word angels there is the same as um, the Hebrew B'nai Ha Elohim that we find earlier in Job, as well as Genesis 6, the same B'nai Ha Elohim that came down and mated with women and Nephilim and all that stuff. Right. So, so again, there's like this potential tie-in of like, okay, where did these guys come from? And if they were shouting for joy... Prior, you know, at the creation of Earth, right? Well, then, what were they doing? You know, what what was going on before then? And uh, you know, I've I've talked to some people that theorize that, hey, you know, the angels were created on they must have been created on day three. Right. It doesn't say anything of the sort, but they kind of just you know they deduce yeah. it logically. Right. Right. Yeah. But that okay. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's. <laughs> That's a, a questionable remark by them, I would say. Yeah, because it's not really actually in the Bible that it says, you know, the angels were created at this point. And, and, and you know, the other arguments I've heard as well, it doesn't, it's not really important that we know when angels were created. And to some degree, I agree. But at the same time, there are clues. There are little, little tidbits, you know. So, okay. So this is where it starts getting a little more interesting. Uh, Isaiah 14. Okay, this is the famous passage... Uh, that talks about Lucifer, the son of the morning, right? Um, and if we dig into the Hebrew uh, via like an interlinear Bible, uh, we find that, you know, where it says, O Lucifer, son of the dawn, which is the KJV version, right. uh, it actually translates to Hillel ben Ashur. Or sorry, I totally butchered that. Hillel ben Sahar. And Hillel means shine or to be clear. Uh, but it also means boastful. And Sahar is dawn, which has the connotation of early or earliest or first. So it could read, O shining boastful sun from the earliest. Now, this is obviously talking about Satan, right. Lucifer. Uh, and the same word um, is used in Genesis 3.15 as the shining one that recently Dr. Michael Heiser has really pointed out. 
for the word serpent. But isn't it interesting that there's this kind of potential connotation of this shining being who is boastful, and he's the son from the earliest. He was one of the first created beings of God. Um, I just think that's really compelling. Right. Uh, yeah, no, it's fascinating. And it's, and that's the great thing about going right back into the Hebrew. And uh, Doug, if you're listening, there's good job, buddy. Um, <laughs> uh, no, yeah, it's because it, it really does open up. Um, I mean, uh, the, the Bible being translated into English, I think might have been, I mean, it, it, it's, it, there's such a good side and such a bad side to it. Yeah. I think, you know, well, it's I, great. It's great that we have it, and I can understand that. I love it, but uh, you, you do lose a lot in yeah, translation. Definitely. And I, I, you know, people always ask me like, Oh, what version of the Bible you use? And it's like, well, you know, get back to the original language, you know, the best right. you can. And I, I'm not a language. I'm not a Hebrew scholar or a, you know, Greek scholar or anything like that. I'm just, you know, just doing my own study here and trying to, trying to figure out what's going on. So, Luckily, we know Greek scholars and Hebrew scholars. Yeah, yeah. And he would actually disagree with a lot. Of, Doug would, in particular, would disagree with a lot of this. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, whatever. Well, that's good to know. I, yeah, well, I've, I've spoken to Doug about, well, not about all of this, but, uh, and, and others who are very vehemently young earth creationists. And not to say that I'm not for that, because there's, you know, I kind of, I don't know. I just think it's one of those things that you, you, you shouldn't lose fellowship over and, you know, right. people shouldn't lose jobs and stuff over, you know, some of these other matters that don't necessarily uh, affect so we're just, our salvation. We're, we're talking about this in the same way that uh, we were talking about colonies on Mars. We're just telling it. Yeah, we're just telling, telling it. The story. We're telling the story that is a possibility from the Bible. So okay. let's move on here. Ezekiel 28. Um, now, this is a, it's another pretty famous uh, chapter. And um, where it talks about the king of Tyre, um, but it's kind of you know it's kind of weird because the, the whole thing it's it starts off as like oh the king of Tyre, but then as it kind of goes on it sort of starts talking about Satan. So it, it's it's sort of uh, reflecting the spirit behind the king of Tyre. But interestingly enough, Tyre is called the daughter of Sidon in Isaiah twenty three twelve, and Tyre means stone. And the city of Tyre happened to revere a god had fallen like a stone from heaven. Now, Sidon is interesting because it reflects the city Sidonia. And, you know, some of you guys, we haven't brought this up, but Sidonia on Mars is where a lot of these, uh, you know, the face of Mars allegedly is and um, some of these other uh, structure-like things that appear to have some very clear definition and uh yeah there's there's a pentagon up there yeah there's the face there's all sorts of stuff that's you know uh, pretty compelling yeah and so you know keep that in mind and so ezekiel 28 14 it says uh you were anointed as a guardian cherub for so i ordained you so the the guardian cherub is obviously satan you were on the holy mount of god you walked among the fiery stones and Okay, so again, the guardian cherub we believe is Satan walked among the fiery stones. Uh, the Hebrew for stone is abne, and it means built stone. So it's not just like you know, just rocks kind of around. These are stones that imply that they have been built. 
and so the only stones that are out there in the sky and whatnot are planets. So the possibility... Oh, and so, okay, so the fiery stones, they reflect fire. Fire, the sun, obviously, reflects on these things, and they look like fiery stones in the sky. Like, planets look like that, you know, in the night sky. Stars and planets right. look like these big fiery stones in the in the night sky. So the so this guardian cherub, Satan, going to and fr- uh, being on the holy mount of God and walking among the fiery stones is potentially talking about Satan being able to traverse through outer space, through the planets. And again, this might sound absolutely insane to some people. No, you- well, that doesn't sound insane to me. I, I mean, I guess I sort of already figured that, uh, you know, angels have some sort of interstellar, you know, abilities to travel just even on a, you know, even on the very simplest level of understanding them as a spiritual little floaty being. Right. It doesn't, it doesn't seem crazy to me that angels can go to other planets. I don't, I don't, I don't know a lot about the physics of the material that angels are made up of or their abilities um, to, you know, breathe or whatever, you know, whatever. Right, right, right. So that doesn't sound crazy to me. I'm, I'm following along. Okay. So let's, let's keep going. Ezekiel 28, 15 and on. Okay. So we're same, same chapter. We're going to keep going Uh, again, talking about Satan. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created. Interesting. Till unrighteousness was found in you in the abundance of your trade. You were filled with violence in your midst and you sinned. So I cast you as a profane thing from the mountain of God. And I destroyed you, O guardian cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Again, he was expelled from the stones of fire. And this goes into, uh, again, the possibilities that there was this catastrophe in outer space. And that's why we see all these craters and stuff on all these planets. Right. Well, and it it totally makes sense to think about it in this sort of, uh, in this sort of context, because... The writers of Genesis, uh, or where are we reading from right now? We're reading from Ezekiel. Ezekiel. The writers of Ezekiel wouldn't really know what planets are. Right. I mean, or, they, they, they probably had some idea, but yeah, to, in a sense of like, you know, they didn't know that there were craters and stuff on, I mean, I don't think at least in that time, a uh, couple unless, centuries BC. Right. Unless they had some crazy, uh, leftover you know. Atlantis technology. Exactly. <laughs> well, do you see, we, we posted the, um, the Baghdad battery on our Facebook the other day, oh, which right. is, you know, so, I mean, there's, there's crazy stuff. Anyways, let's continue. All right. Yeah. Let's keep going. So, uh, I'm going to go on here. Uh, I destroyed you. O guardian cherub from the midst of the stones of fire. Uh, your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I exposed you before kings to feast their eyes on you. By the multitudes of your iniquities and the unrighteousness of your trade, you profane your sanctuaries. Now, sanctuaries is interesting because what is what is God trying to say here? Satan had sanctuaries? Well, also kings. He said he cast you down before kings. Now there's kings at the time of... Satan getting cast down. Right. And this is before 
mankind was around, right? So it's right. just very interesting. Yeah, it's pretty fascinating. You know, it's it's interesting. You can read these scriptures many times and not think about some of these little details as you go through. Yeah, the Mars filter. It just kind of the, you know. the, Ma- <laughs> the Mars filter. Yeah. I love that. Okay, today we have the Mars filter on, everybody. <laughs> Put your Mars goggles on, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay, let me keep going here. So I brought fire for, uh, out from your midst. I consumed you, and I turned you to ashes on the earth in the sight of all who saw you. And, you know, I'm thinking maybe, hey, maybe he was physical, and he lost his physical part of him or something. You know, I mean, he right. was turned to ashes, and everyone right. was watching. It's like, oh shoot, you know, Satan didn't uh, wasn't allowed to keep his physical body because he was so bad or whatever. Right now, and, and since we're on the you know the differentiation between Earth and Mars, it has the word Earth there in that um, passage. Passage. Do we do we know if that was uh, translated as Earth, the planet, or Earth, the uh, you know? dirt um i'm in general I, I can look it up right now but i'm pretty sure most of the time when they refer to earth it's talking about like the dirt right and, and so it kind of it, it kind of has a connotation of like the ground the, the dirt um right. so it, i think it's both you know it's not like it's not like in english where we differentiate between like planet earth and soil you know it's yeah. it's, it's not it's not as distinguished as it was, I think, back in back in uh, those Hebrew times. Got it. Um, but okay, we're gonna give in, get into some even some more here. The Old Testament, man, it's filled with some craziness that you know everyone focuses so much on the New Testament, but the Old Testament has got some crazy, crazy stuff. But let's keep going. Uh, so we've already seen some stuff about Satan and his angels rebelling and God destroying the place where they lived or inhabited. And in Job 26, 11 uh, through 14, um, I'm going to break it up here, but 11 and 12, it says, The pillars of the heavens quake against at, uh, aghast at his rebuke. By his power, he churned up the sea. By his wisdom, he cut Rahab to pieces. Now, the word cut there means shatter. And Rahab, I know most people, when you hear Rahab, you immediately think of um, you know, the Rahab, the harlot in the book of Joshua. But the Hebrew word here is not the same. And again, these are the things that you find when you start looking into the original language, uh, or at least looking at an interlinear Bible. And um, so the uh, Rahab in Joshua comes from the word rakav. It's R-A-C-H-A-V in English. And, you know, that just means enlarge, extend, grow wide, but this Rahab that Job 26 talks about comes from the word Rahav, R-A-H-A-V, which means proud, strength, bluster. So, again, it's just interesting how there's like that difference there. And, you know, I think most concordances uh, uh, translates Rahab as like a sea monster because it says, you know, by his power, he churned up the sea and, you know, by his wisdom, he cut Rahab to pieces. So, you know, obviously it's talking about a sea monster, you know, but I don't think it's as clear cut and dry. And, um, you know, in preparing for this show, I was, was looking through a lot of David Flynn's work and stuff. And I'm sure if you're familiar with David Flynn, some of this stuff is not new to you, but, uh, um, David, uh, believes that Rahab was actually a planet that was destroyed. 
And it's sort of difficult to connect where he got that from, but um, it it seems like what he's suggesting anyway is that the asteroid belt that we see today was Rahab. It was this planet that, that orbited the solar system, and it was destroyed at some point. And from that destruction, planets like Mars and, you know, even the moon and even the Earth uh, saw a lot of chaos and darkness. And, you know, whatever inhabitants there were in outer space, they were all sort of destroyed, too, or, you know, at least, you know, (laughs) taken out to some degree. Uh, Right. And it was kind of like this this God's judgment uh, prior to humanity being there, this this kind of old ancient judgment upon the beings that lived upon the solar system. So, I mean, again, these are, these are potential, you know, these are just theories. But if we go on Job 26, 13 and 14, um, it, it echoes this, this idea here. It says, by his breath, the skies became fair. He, uh, uh, his hand pierced the gliding serpent. And these are but the outer fringe of his work. How faint the whisper we hear of him. Who who then can understand the thunder of his power? So again, showing that God is this powerful being that that, you know, he judges. That's what he does. He's he's this just being that he can't help himself. I mean, at a certain point the iniquity gets too much and, you know, he just has to rain down his justice upon the world, you know. It's just right, kind of right. how he is, you know. Um um, and Psalm 89.10 also echoes this idea of breaking Rahab. And it says, you have broken Rahab in pieces as one slain. You have scattered your enemies with your mighty army. And again, I mean, <laughs> with the Mars goggles on, this thing is like super compelling. <laughs> um, yeah, so th- there's a few more here. I know this is getting sort of long and stuff, but I'm, we're almost through, you know, with the mini Bible study here. But uh, um, when we get into Judges 5.23, now this, this is, again, a little bit of speculation, but Judges 5.23 says, Curse ye Meroz, uh, M-E-R-O-Z, said the angel of the Lord, Curse ye bitterly the inhabitants thereof, because they came not to help of the Lord, to help of the Lord against the mighty. Uh, now in the Talmud, Morose is a name of a planet that was thought to have been inhabited. And even the Zo- even in the uh, Zohar, which is the Jewish mystic writings that uh, kind of are the foundation of the Kabbalah, uh, right. they even mention Morose, the star, uh, and its inhabitants. And, uh, and if anyone has a Zohar, they can look that up on Zohar 3, uh, 269b. And um, Strong's, interestingly, I found this kind of interesting. Strong's Concordance says that they're not sure where that word morose comes from, uh, but it must have been a city in the North North Palestine area. And so... Yeah. That's what I was going to say. What is, I mean, what is the standard, like, definition of morose? What is... Well, that's, that's what they say. They say they're not sure where the root comes from, but, you know... It must have been a city somewhere in Israel or North Palestine. Right, so it's just completely ambiguous. Yeah, which is, again, it's one of those things where if you do a little a little study in, in other places that allegedly uh, use the same word, they right. they seem to reflect something a lot different. And maybe that's why. Maybe there is a, a conspiracy to keep that stuff uh, quiet for the Right, yeah, church. I mean, you, 
you would want to look at other cultural references at that point, just for translation purposes. And, and yeah, I mean, if that's, uh, if that's supposed to be some sort of extraterrestrial, you know, out, off of earth, uh, kingdom or something, then that would definitely throw a wrench in a lot of the, uh, a lot of, a lot of things. <laughs> <laughs> a lot. Yeah. And, and I find it interesting again in that, in that verse in judges, uh, it says, curse ye bitterly the inhabitants thereof. And it's like, again, this picture of God, just like, you guys are just total, you know, whatever. You guys are just like ruining it. You know, you guys are totally right. blowing it or whatever. Right. And um, I just find it very interesting. And so again, it, it points to this unique possibility that there was this pre-Adamic race of beings that were not human, uh, but certainly humanoid in some form or right. another. Uh, they inhabited the solar system, and and maybe that's why there's so much uh, collective memory in the mind, in the ancient past of man, of you know space travel and ancient civilization and other planets and and all these things that that our imagination, quote unquote, seems to take us to. But potentially, it's it was real. You know, I mean, who knows? Right, right. Now, uh, I mean, what do you think? Is is that maybe? I mean. Like, are they other sort of humanoid creations or were they angelic uh, creations or what we would know now as angelic beings? Or, I mean, what what do you think about that? I don't know. Yeah. I, I'm not sure. I, I can't. There's nothing, at least as far as what I've seen or, or studied, that can tell me for sure that it's that they were once physical. I mean, it's possible that that physical what we understand as physical right now what could have been different in the past i mean who knows right, you know i mean it, right. the because if you look at if you start looking at the garden of eden and how we were kind of locked out of the spiritual world i mean maybe the spirit world and the physical world were a little bit more one before right. you know what i mean maybe right. there was something that's um like there was a physical aspect but the spiritual aspect was a lot more prevalent in right. our everyday experiences and so um, well, you know, what's interesting is if we start to kind of put together what we talked about earlier with the sort of bubble uh, civilization that, um, you like know, a, the, Ameri the American government has been uh, uh, teleporting to, and you combine that with a, you know, a theory of a pre-edemic race, well, maybe somehow you know an extraterrestrial or a demon or you know some spirit or whoever uh is sort of connecting that pre-edemic race back with you know the current uh time frame that we're in now yeah no it's be, totally possible yeah it'd be pretty interesting and and this this kind of raises a whole nother level of you know this possibility of a spirit realm of being something again that that has been separated uh, until God kind of recreates everything, it's kind of like this this border, and right. that's why you know the the uh, drugs that open up spirit portals and stuff like that are right. kind of a violation of that boundary, and you know, again, who knows? <laughs> we're, we're totally. Some people are probably thinking these guys have lost their minds. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> the, the the bird has actually, uh, you know, 
the bird has flown melted the, their brains or whatever. It's in the cuckoo cry radio now. <laughs> um, but uh, and again, I think there is, and I think I look at the the places in the Bible where God really does like just hammer down stuff, and it's very clear. You know, like for example, the Tower of Babel. Um, I need to do more study on this and, and figure out really what's going on there. But I'm thinking that the Tower of Babel, not only was it just like this, um, you know, portal or whatever to the spirit realm, but I think it was a time machine because think about God coming down and saying, no, God, you know, basically saying, you know, you guys can't do this. This right. is totally just out of your jurisdiction. Like you cannot be doing this. What uh-huh. would it be? I mean, time travel would be one of those things that if you, openly and fully completely control time uh you know i mean you can pretty much play god you know and right. so uh, this is just a theory I, I don't know but um it's just very compelling because it opens up those possibilities um and okay so there's there's one more verse here that i wanted to uh or section that i wanted to bring up and um it's in jeremiah 4 23 through 26 and this is where Jeremiah potentially, I mean, you know, some people will say that it's not, but gets a vision into the ages uh, before Adam. And so, you know, he's kind of talking about the judgment of the land and stuff like that, but it's interesting how he just words it here. So, uh, so it says here, I looked at the earth and it was formless and empty. Now this, again, the word was there is more akin to behold in this case, but it's interesting that you know, behold, the earth is formless and empty, like referring back to the Genesis account. Right. Um, and so I'll continue here. And the heavens and their light was gone. Again, you know, kind of pointing to the possibility of maybe the six day creation was sort of a, a recreation, you know, for humanity. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. And it says, I looked at the mountains and they were quaking. All the hills were swaying. I looked and there were no people. Okay. So no people. Very important point there. Every bird in the sky had flown away. Interesting that there's birds. I looked and the fruitful land was a desert. All its towns lay in ruins before the Lord, before his fierce anger. Now, if this was a time where there were no people, why were there towns? And why were they in ruins? And why was it because of the fierce anger of the Lord? So again... Not super clear, but at the same time, the potential right. of Jeremiah well, talking about. Now, what is the context of this story here? It's or this he's, vision? he's sort of going through. So this is this is an area where Jeremiah is talking about the disaster from the north, and um, basically, there's a trumpet call in Jerusalem, and he's kind of raising a warning about the destruction of Israel, basically. Right. So again, is it just that, or it seems like to me anyway, a lot of these things are very poetic in one regard, and and certainly you have to take that into account. But they seem to kind of layer, especially in the Old Testament. It seems like a lot of the prophets and stuff, there's kind of layers of meaning. You know, if you go back to what we looked at in um, Ezekiel twenty-eight about the king of Tyre and how it kind of went from the king of Tyre to Satan, you know, it just kind of seamlessly kind of blended the two together. I'm, I'm, I I am convinced that there is more than one meaning to the text. And of course, you know, we have to 
take into account proper hermeneutics and exegesis and stuff like that. Um, but at the same time, I think God is a little bit bigger than what our, you know, two and a half brains can put together. And so two and a half brains, two and a half pounds, right? Isn't our brain like two and a half pounds? Oh, I thought you were talking about like you have a brain and I have a brain and one of us has an extra half a brain. <laughs> I don't, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. The bird has half the brain. The canary has, is constitute gonna, as the half brain. There's a lot of translations going on now yeah. and uh, I'm, I must have missed that one. Okay. <laughs> well, anyway. No, I, okay. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> Were you gonna Were you gonna go on with the half brain thing? Or? No, no. We we can. Uh, I'll save the half brain thing for another episode. Okay. Well, uh, we can probably use another half brain between the two of us. <laughs> yeah, I think we could. <laughs> Especially after this episode, you know. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> but okay, so you know we're we're trying to just enlighten or not enlighten. That's not the right word. Maybe appraise you of some different possibilities, some different angles of the Bible that you may not have heard of or considered. So, you know, again, take all this with, um, well, I think if nothing else, it, yeah, it, it's an interesting investigation of a number of scriptures. Uh, again, like we said, look, looking at it through the Mars goggles that we invented. <laughs> um, and, uh, yeah. And with all the sort of attention that Mars is going to get and, uh, and, you know, and, Andrew Baggio state claiming he's going to run for president in 2016 uh, on the platform that he's going to, you know, disclose all of the government's actions in the way of teleportation in Mars and things like that. I mean, the, the, the Mars is going to play a big role in human history if indeed human history continues uh, long enough for it to do so. Um, so yeah, that's that's why we wanted to take this time because uh, there's a lot going on with Mars. Yeah, and and again, if the news hits tomorrow, let's say life on Mars proven, you know, and whatever they find an ancient structure or something like that, know that there is a biblical angle to this. And if anything else, you one know, does exist. Yeah, <laughs> one does exist, no matter how. Uh, twisted it might seem um because i think that's important though it's an important point and this i think is a main point kind of an overall wrapping up point i guess is to study all angles and to understand different possibilities of bible translation and things like that because if you stick so hard to one view and something happens and it's you know it 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 can potentially be um well yeah, it could be earth. It could be faith shattering. Exactly. Exactly. Um, That's my point. And, and not only that, but whatever you decide, or if you continue your own research on these, uh, this, you know, biblical look at Mars, um, you know, when you hear about it in the future, you won't, it won't be the first time you've heard about it. And that's right. always nice to, you know, not be completely in the dark when suddenly somebody is talking about Mars in the Bible or Mars, colonies and uh you know a martian running for president like you'll you can say you can think back you can thank us in your heart thank you basil and gons for taking the time to explain these crazy ideas martian running for president that would be very interesting i mean i'm not convinced that it hasn't happened already 
Oh. So, <laughs> Who do you think is the Martian that ran for president? Um, you Ross know, Perot, maybe. For the, <laughs> for, the, for the sake of uh, keeping politically neutral at this point, I will save that for when I go on my political tangents some other time. Okay, well, you know, we're, we're very politically uh, one-sided, as uh, most people can tell. Yeah, we're a uh, green party all the way. Mars party. Mars party. <laughs> so, all right, yeah, so, I mean, that's kind of what we had in mind. We'll probably do another Mars episode and, and get a, in the future, probably not soon, but at some point, Someday. to uh, dig into more of Sidonia, because there's a lot of information there, especially the work of David Flynn. Um, he's the only guy I know of that really looked at this from a biblical angle that uh, tried to make sense of any of this stuff. Um, you know, some other guys that are big in the conspiracy world with Mars, um, obviously Richard Hoagland. Um, he's, uh, you know, he believes that there's, uh, ancient structures on the moon and Mars and stuff. And, and again, those things wouldn't necessarily clash with the biblical view and, and whatnot, at least from the angle we kind of, uh, threw at you in this episode, but you know, who knows well, maybe we're just all crazy. We're we're the crazy ones. Maybe Mars doesn't even really exist. I don't know. Not me. I've been there. Oh, okay. So now now the truth comes out. <laughs> no, just kidding. The government would never let me tell you that. <laughs> um, all right. It's we're getting late and it's getting silly. So thanks everybody for tuning in to Canary Cry Radio. Uh, we hope you can bring something or take something out of this, um, the, all these ideas. And, and at least, you know, we're prompted to consider Mars as something uh, we should be thinking about as believers and as non-believers in both uh, the Lord and certain conspiracies. So keep thinking outside the cage. Thank you for listening to this episode of Canary Cry Radio. The show notes for this episode and many others are available at canarycryradio.com. Make sure to connect and like our Facebook page at facebook.com slash canarycryradio. Follow us on Twitter at canarycryradio. If you would like to share the show in video format, you can find us on YouTube by searching Canary Cry Radio. We would like to thank those of you who have given us your support, prayers, and donations. If you would like to join us and support Canary Cry Radio financially, you could do so by visiting canarycryradio.com and clicking the support tab. Thanks again for listening, and until next time, remember to think outside the cage. I would like to take this time to thank a particular listener who gave us some great sage advice on how to humanely take care of some crickets. And that listener on the comment boards is Steph. I don't know if you're Steven or Stephanie or, you know, Stephocalypse. Steph, you may actually be Stephocalypse. Um, but uh, whoever you are, Steph, thank you for the great tip on how to get rid of crickets. Cause I think for the most part, we are cricket free today. Um, for everybody else who has a cricket problem, Steph, uh, did a good job of recommending taking some molasses uh, and putting it in a little dish and waiting for the crickets to come have a feast and getting stuck. And it's actually a funny story. Who has molasses anymore? I don't know who keeps molasses around the house. I 
had been seeing a jar of molasses in my house for months. And I had no idea why it was there. I had no idea who bought it. I was completely, I mean, I, I physically, well, mentally did my best to just ignore it. Because I had no idea. I'm not, I don't live in the 1800s and <laughs> need, I don't even know what molasses was really for. But anyways, the the Lord does provide. And I had some molasses and you can all thank Steph for a cricket-free show today. Even though you can kind of hear him in the back. Well, then we might just... You missed his cue.